Good morning, Bethel. Good morning. All right, so we're going to read our scripture reading here, and you can find it on page 512. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You can grab that black um, Bible and turn to page 512. We're going to read Psalm 119, 1 to 16. Our sermon text is 9 to 16, but I think it's helpful to see in the context of 1 to 16. So if you wouldn't mind, please, in honor of God's word, stand with me as I read. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so... This summer, we've been in this series called Summer in the Psalms for the Fight of Faith, and we're winding down the summer, we're winding down our summer series. Um, It's this week and next week, and then we'll be on to a a refresh of our values um, the week after that. So each week we've taken a psalm that addresses a particular issue or sin that we struggle with, and we've seen how to fight the good fight of the faith to overcome that sin. So there's lots of different fronts of temptation in our lives, but there's only one battle. So the Christian life is a life of faith from beginning to end. It's the fight of faith um, that we need to learn how to wage. So ultimately, the battle's been won by our Savior, by our champion, Jesus. And so now we can fight in the strength that he provides. We don't fight the good fight of faith in order to be saved. We fight the good fight of faith because we have been saved, okay? So we can't conquer our sin on our own. None of us can. If we are, if we're going to face the judge of all the earth on our own with our own efforts, our own sin, we are in trouble. We can't work hard enough to get into his good graces. We can't deal with our sin. We need a Savior. And so if you are without a Savior this morning, you are going to stand before the judge without an advocate, without a deliverer, without a savior. And so I appeal to you to trust in him this morning. So because we've been delivered by Jesus as our savior, we are enabled to, we have power to fight the good fight of the faith and fight we must. We are in a spiritual battle, folks. We've got to recognize that. We've got to resist firm in our faith. So just time this with uh, some recent events here. This fight, spiritual battle, is infinitely more important than the Mayweather-McGregor fight. Okay? Who knows what I'm talking about? 
Okay, I'm glad that there's some hands that aren't up because I think actually the people that do have their hands up are a parable and the people that don't have their hands up are a parable. So if you do know and you've seen this crazy hype over this fight between Mayweather and McGregor that happened last night, I mean, if, if you talk to some boxing nut over the past you know, f- few weeks, you can imagine that this would, have been, this would have come up and the boxing world is consumed with this huge, you know, just fight of the century. There have been lots of those. Um, but anyway, you know. And so that's a parable of how we ought to be consumed with the ultimate spiritual battle. And those of you, some, somebody who has no idea what I'm talking about, yes, Tracy, thank you. Can I pick on, I'm not picking on you, just using an example. Tracy's ignorance is a picture. Like, what are you talking about? No, no big deal. So relative to the infinitely important spiritual battle, that's how we ought to be toward all these secondary, stupid, like, things that we so often get caught up on. We just get it ba- backwards. So the very, like, what? Who cares? Big deal. That's actually how we ought to be to so many of the things that so consume us and we just sidebar the greatest fight that we will ever wage. And that's actually Satan's strategy in and of itself. He's laughing up his sleeve because we're focused on the wrong battle. So anyway, throughout this series, we've seen what the fight of faith looks like, how to do it in relation to guilt and anger and depression and fear and envy and grumbling and this morning, lust. And then next week, anxiety, okay? And then we'll be done with this series. So this morning, Psalm 119, 9 to 16. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Psalter. It's a beautiful picture of the life of the righteous. Almost every verse says something about the Word of God using one of eight different terms. Almost every verse is directed to God. You know, there's only two verses that are not a prayer, not directed to God. Psalm 119 is an acrostic. It's, so if you want to learn the Hebrew alphabet and you're wondering what those weird you know, titles are, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, those are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22. 22 times 8, 176. 176 verses in this psalm. Okay, there you go. So it's a masterful poem, but it's a model of the life of the righteous. It echoes, it unpacks the blessed path of the righteous that opens the Psalter in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, meditates on it day and night. Psalm 119 is like an extended sermon or unpacking of that blessedness and what that life looks like. I love how one of my seminary professors, Willem van Gemmeren, um, introduces this psalm and then it leads right into our section. He says, the longest psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 119, is well known for its teaching on God's law. Yet the beauty of this psalm lies not only in the recitation of devotion to the law, but in the psalmist's absolute devotion to the Lord. This is a psalm not only of law, but of love. Not only of statute, but of spiritual strength. Not only of devotion to precept, but of loyalty to the way of the Lord. The beauty of this psalm resounds from the relationship of the psalmist and his God. The love for God's word is love for God, expressed in a heart attitude, in actions and in words, 
In his whole being, the godly man cries out for God and delights in his will. This, this orientation of life, can guide a young man to keep his way pure. So that leads us right into our passage. And the question that we need to answer this morning, point number one, how, how can you keep your life pure? How can a young man or any other man keep his way pure? In our world, is this even possible? Like in a world where porn is available at the click of a button? Where voyeurism is normalized and available in all kinds of ways online? Even just the fact that you can get a picture of anyone like that. And oftentimes, not great pictures. Where sexting is commonplace among younger people especially, although not just younger people, as some politicians have shown. So where everything from tires to toothpaste is sold with sex, where objectification is normalized and reinforced all the time, everywhere. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young woman, or every other woman for that matter, keep her way pure? Purity is not just a male struggle. Porn can be just as, big as pro- just as big a problem for women. In addition, there can be lusting to have the body, the sex appeal of other women. Lusting for affection and security and romance. And the ubiquity, it is just all over the place, of using your body to get what you want. To turn heads, to get likes, to get affection. So Al Mohler once said, Men are more likely to look at pornography. Women are more likely to commit it. So how can young people keep their way pure in this world? Like in the ears of many young people, nudity in TV and film is no big deal. And some older folks too. Like how many Christians are watching Game of Thrones? Are you watching that show? Your conscience has been seared. Like I'm just going to say it. Is that legalistic? No, no. This is dangerous. Of course, Satan wants to normalize. Like, if you actually walked it, like, we don't realize how it's the frog in the kettle thing. If you actually walked upon some of this or, you know, were sitting beside some parent or friend or whatever, you would, you would feel really uncomfortable doing that. Like, hey, Jesus, let's go watch Game of Thrones together. No, but there's seemingly lots of Christians watching that show. Just getting specific, not getting legalistic here. So if you actually choose not to watch things that contain nudity, you might be considered prudish or hypersensitive or legalistic. So we in the church have got to care about the purity of young men and women in the church. Satan is happy to make Aphrodite the goddess of choice in our world. He seems to be doing a pretty effective job. Porn is an epidemic, and it's all one click away. So let me give you a few stats. This is found at the Tim Challey's blog. I'll post a link along with some other resources this week, so don't feel like you've got to write this stuff down. So just listen. This is how serious this battle is and how badly we need the answer. How how can a young man keep his way pure? How can any of us keep our way pure in this world? In 2016, people watched 4.6 billion hours of pornography at just one website. 
That's 524,000 years of porn, or if you will, around 17,000 complete lifetimes. At age 11, the average child has already been exposed to explicit pornographic content through the internet. 93% of boys, 62% of girls during their adolescent years are exposed. 57% of young adults admit to seeking out porn at least once per month. 46% of men admit to the same. Meanwhile, 49% of adults say that most or all of their friends use porn on a regular basis. 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral in their view toward pornography. This is just cross-section of our culture. That leaves only a tiny minority who consider it a negative thing. 61% of pornography is watched on a mobile phone. In the U.S., that's as high as 70%. Today, 33% of women aged 25 and under go searching for porn at least once per month. 62% of teens and young adults have received a sexually, sexually explicit image. Meanwhile, 41% have sent one, usually to their boyfriend or girlfriend. Women are more likely to send and receive these nude images. There's immense pressure on young women to send photos of themselves to young men who, of course, can never be trusted with such photos. We've heard, I'm sure, plenty of stories. 36% of young adults watch pornography to get tips or ideas that they can apply to their own sexual relationships. So from the very worst teachers... 80% of porn users feel no sense of guilt when using porn. That is scary. Begins to deaden the conscience over time, obviously. So just a little statistical help for us to feel how much we need to care about this question, how much parents need to care about this question, how much the church needs to care about this question, how much we all need to care about this question. So if you're a young man, please... Do you care about this question? I hope so. I plead with you to care. If you're a young woman, yes, please, for yourself, and how about for any man that you might begin to date? I hope that you hope he takes the answer to this question really seriously. If you're a parent, yes, we cannot have our head in the sands, heads in the sand on this one. Like, I just pray all the time for my sons. I pray for their sexuality for it to be protected and shaped. Pray for my daughters all the time, praying for their sexuality, for protection, and that their sexuality would be shaped by God's grace and truth. And that, are they going to be able to find a young man, a godly young man who's not enslaved to this? It's so prevalent. If you're a grandparent, you need to care about the answer to this question. Cannot have our heads in the sand. Not my precious little grandson or grand... No, that's naive. So we need to feel the weight of this. Like, oh, I feel the weight of this all the time in our home. I feel like I... I we need to guard our homes, protect our kids from the cesspool that's just washing around us all the time. I want to teach my kids, cultivate an environment where we can talk about these things openly. Not a police state, but with vigilance... So I've used this statement a few times, got it from Ray Ortland in that gospel culture book throughout this series, and it's so applicable here. When it comes to these issues, whether it's your home or, or the church, we need to be a place where it's safe for sinners, but not safe for sin. So we've got to care about this question, 
And not just for ourselves, but for upcoming generations. But for ourselves. Not just for the upcoming generations, okay? We are all sexual sinners in this room. Everyone in this room is a sexual sinner. Different temptations, different weeds, but the same noxious root of unbelief. So we all have sinful sexual pasts, things we've done. We have temptations in the present. Some of you might be completely like entangled in this right now. So here in this church, we need to make it so clear that this place is safe for sinners to get real with God and have help when they want to repent and trust Jesus and that we love you enough that it's not safe for sin and others are going to love us enough where they're not going to just commiserate merely or we're just going to skate over this stuff. Like, oh, how wrong the church goes when it gets flipped. Safe for sin, not safe for sinners. Ever been in a church like that? Got to look good on the outside? You know, put the facade up? And so, hey, if you can look good, it's safe for sin because you can hide it. But, oh, some sinners come in, and all of a sudden we're like tut-tutting, you know, or judging people or whatever. Like, no, safe for sinners. Just like Jesus was safe for sinners, and they came to him, but then he changed them. Not safe for sin. So we've got to fight the good fight of the faith, but how, how in this environment can a young man, young woman, older man, older woman, how if you're in a cold marriage, how if you're aching, in your singleness, how can you keep your way pure, maintain purity, stay on the path of purity? This psalm is going to help us. So second point, by living a word-centered life. Look at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So that's the immediate answer. In a sense, it's even the bottom line. But the psalmist doesn't go on in verses 10 to 16 to other things. He's unpacking that in verses 10 to 16. He doesn't just answer the question and then move on. He also answers the follow-up questions like, what does that mean? What does that look like to guard it according to your word? So he provides this kind of holistic, multicolored answer to the question. So you can see in these verses how central the word of God is to this fight for purity. So let's just scan down through the passage and just note how this psalmist, as an example to us, is living this word-centered life in order to be able to guard his life and keep his way pure. Ready? By guarding it according to your word, obviously. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's the word in my heart that's going to protect me. Verse 12, this prayer, teach me your statutes. I need to really know them. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. Like I'm not ashamed of your ways, your truth, your rules. I'm going to publicly align myself with your truth. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight 
word-centered, as much as in all riches. This is my treasure. 15, I will meditate on your precepts. Fix my eyes on your ways. Word-centered. I will delight in your statutes. My God owns my affections and my delights. I will not forget your word. Word-centered life. So, brothers and sisters, do you feel, I don't mean just know in your head, I mean do you feel your desperate need for the word of God? Think back on those stats. Again, that's just in relation to sexual temptation. And the word of God is the primary weapon with which to battle these temptations. Just think of Jesus in the wilderness. How did he battle there? With the sword of the Spirit. That's how he resisted the evil one. And yet we'd rather scroll Instagram than read the Bible. We'd rather get on with our day. I've got so much to do. Then get in the Word. We need to actually make war. We need to battle against that, like, I am out of touch with reality and out of touch with my need. We need to push back against that. So we've been pushing this book, Don't Follow Your Heart, the whole way along through this series. And I want to read you most of one of the chapters that is so helpful along these lines. It's, he's commenting on let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Colossians 3.16. But just listen to this quote by John Bloom. It's extended, so hang with it, but it's so helpful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Another way to say it is don't stop the word of Christ from filling you to satisfaction or stop stopping it from filling you. Here's the thing. We are frequently impoverished spiritually by our own not letting ourselves be rich. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We are impoverished spiritually by our not letting ourselves be rich. On our shelves or bedstands or in our tablets or computers is a bank vault of true riches. But the pawn shop trinkets of worldly words are deceptively attractive. We can even be on our way to spend our time on the riches in the vault and end up spending it in the pawn shops along the way. What Paul wants us to do is to neglect things that make us poor and not neglect things that make us truly rich. If the words of the Wall Street Journal or World Magazine or Wired Magazine or David Brooks or David Letterman or David McCullough or John Mayer or John Steinbeck or John Calvin or Richard Dawkins or Richard Branson or Richard Baxter or Bono or Bach or blogs dwell in you more richly than the word of Christ, you're poor. You might be impressive at a dinner party or around a conference table or at a small group, but you're poor. You're storing up dust. You don't need to be in the know. You don't need to be admired among the literati or respected in the guild. You don't need an impressive net worth. You don't need to be well-traveled or well-read. You don't need to be up on how many Twitter followers Taylor Swift has. You don't need to be politically articulate or current on the mommy blogs. You don't need to see the movie. You don't need to read the novel. You don't need to look hip. But what you desperately need more than anything else in the world is the word of Christ dwelling into you richly. No one speaks like Jesus Christ. He's the word of God and the word that is God. He's the word of life. And when he speaks, his word is living and active. And he shows you the path of life. And his words give you hope and joy and peace. Jesus is the only human being in all of history who speaks the very words of eternal life. And when you listen and believe his word, it becomes your life. Deuteronomy 32, 47. Your food, your drink, and your life 
Only Jesus has the words of life. Only him. That's why the Father pleads with us, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Everyone else's words are dust in the winds of time, and to chase them is to chase the wind. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Don't neglect it. Listen to his word. Soak in his word. Memorize his word. Eat and chew it slowly. Don't stop it from benefiting you. Neglect the TV, blogs, social networks, video games, theaters, magazines, books, hobbies, chores, and pursuits that keep you from the vault. Neglect the impoverishing pawn shop trinkets of words that will turn to dust in a day, a week, or a few years. When it comes to life, time really is money. Time is how you spend your life. Don't waste it. Spend your best time buying true riches. So, who has your attention? Who has my attention? Young people, who has your attention? Will what your friends think mean more to you than God's thoughts? For all of us, who is it that when they speak, you listen? Who is that? Is that like your favorite blogger or some investing guru or Oprah? Or would you rather hear what your favorite athlete or cook or YouTube star or musician says than what God has to say? Do you see how this ought to be God, the one who has our attention? The fact that we don't feel that way is precisely the problem. We're not in touch with our need. So what are we going to do with this if we look in the mirror of God's word and see, oh, just go away from the mirror and forget what it looks like, look, forget what we look like, or get some friends around that can help. Maybe you start an a, a daily email where you're just checking in with each other. Again, it's not box checking. It's just, I need help. I need some people, some people in the foxhole with me to help me. Maybe students, maybe you could find a way to use Snapchat to stir each other up. Maybe it's some people in your, in your community group and you start meeting in the mornings every other week or whatever just to talk about what you're reading and encourage each other. Maybe it's starting a Bible reading program. Give it some thought. Be realistic, but push yourself. Scrap the dates if they get in the way. Just get in the Word. We've got to just cut the excuses. Okay, I'm just going to be bald and just straight up, and I'm preaching myself too. This is just too important. It's too necessary. I'm not a reader. Okay, listen. Hey, this is like the 21st century. The ESV Bible app, just click the little audio symbol, and you can just listen. Or Bible Gateway has any version you want. You can listen there. I can't focus. Well, just take it in bite-sized chunks then. Exercise your attention muscle. Hey, you can sit through a movie. Hmm. Use the Bible Project. If you don't know what that is, look it up later. Some awesome videos introducing you to books of the Bible. Read with others. I, this is kind of like a lost art, like communal Bible reading. Some means of grace. You know, monks used to sit and eat their meal while the word of God was read, and so they're feeding their bodies and they're feeding their souls. It's kind of like a living parable. You could do it at your dinner table. Dads, just eat quick or eat last and whatever. Or just get a couple of friends together or whatever. 
So if we don't feed on the word, I'm sorry, we simply don't want to. Necessity is the mother of invention. None of us is too busy. You're not too busy to eat. Of course you miss some meals when you're really busy, but you get something to eat eventually. So none of us is too hampered by this or that obstacle. So the issue is, what do I want? What do I value? What do you treasure? What do you most want to treasure up in your life? What do you most treasure up? How much do you treasure God's word? What is God's word worth to you, which is really what is God worth to you? So word-centered life is essential, not optional. It's a matter of life and death, but also a God-centered life is essential. And we can see that in these verses as well. So remember I said this whole psalm is one extended prayer. There's only two verses directed at other human beings. The rest is all directed Godward. So here's this God-centered psalm modeling this God-centered, God-dependent life. So let's just look through it again and see how he is God-centered as a model for us of what this looks like. So just look for how he's oriented to God. With my whole heart, verse 10, I seek you. With my whole heart, I seek you. Please, God, the one I seek, don't let me wander from your commandments. Don't let me wander from you. I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, the man of God exerts himself but does not trust himself. Isn't that a great combination? With all my heart, I seek, oh, please, I'll wander if you don't help me. Look at verse 12. Blessed are you. Well, he says, I've stored up your word. He's, again, praying. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Please, God-centered. So do you have a teachable spirit with the Lord? So think of a picture. Can you think of a picture? Who, if you hear teachable spirit, who's been a model of that in your life, whether it was as a student or an athlete with a coach or someone learning a trade or whatever? Is that what marks our posture as disciples with our Lord Jesus? That is a God-centered life, and it is key to keeping your way pure. So all of these disordered desires and doubts and coldness and whatever, which we all struggle with all the time, we get our values out of whack all the time, what do we do about it? We don't just throw up the white flag and make a truce. We run to the Lord and say, help me. Don't let me wander. Like I will open my eyes to see wonderful things. Incline my heart to your testimonies, please. Own my affections. Shape my affections. Because the Lord can straighten us out. He can shape us. But we need to pour out our hearts to the Lord and live this God-centered life. So if we're going to live lives of purity and love, we've got to be centered on God. Not centered on ourselves. Not centered even on our work, although work is a good thing in its proper place. Not centered even on our children, although children are a good thing in their proper place. Not centered on our hobbies. Like True north of our lives, if we are a little compass, is true, like the needle of our life is always, you know, no matter how you turn, it's always seeking and finding true north. 
So we are desperately in need of God's grace and help. Does your life of prayer display that desperation? So word-centered life is essential. God-centered life is essential. This life of prayerful dependence centered on the most important, most powerful, most helpful, most wonderful person in the universe. And then, lest we miss how this passage fits into the big story of the Bible, as well as how it fits into our lives, we've got to make explicit what's assumed here, okay? So the psalmist has a relationship with God, right? The question is how to keep his way pure. That's what he's asking. But we can't assume how we enter into right relationship with God. We dare not assume where that cleansing, purifying power is. If we fight by faith, what are we actually trusting? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So Old Testament, there was a shadow of that with the temple and the sacrifices, but we've got the substance. The only way we can be purified for the first time and every time we need it after that, what can make me pure again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So a gospel-centered life is absolutely essential. So the gospel is not just the means by which we enter into that relationship with God, though it is. And only by the blood of Jesus can our defilement and our sin be dealt with and sent as far away as the east is from the west. Our hearts and our minds, our consciences washed clean by the forgiving, cleansing grace of Jesus. But that same gospel is the power for ongoing purity for all of us. It's the continual cleansing. It's 1 John 1, 9 for us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What right do we have to, to that grace, that promise? It's only because we're in this new covenant relationship with God through Christ. So John Piper quotes um, the Charles Wesley hymn and then makes a, a helpful comment here. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So in Battling Unbelief, he says, Charles Wesley's hymn, Oh, for a thousand times, is saying, is right. The blood of Christ obtained for us the cancellation of sin and the conquering of sin. This is the grace we live under, the sin-canceling and the sin-conquering grace of God. Triumph over the sin of lust is all of grace. Past grace, canceling our lust's guilt through the cross, and future grace, conquering lust's power through the Spirit. He promises to be faithful again and again and again. That's future grace, his promises. That's why the only fight we fight is the fight of faith. We fight to be so satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus that temptation to sin loses its power over us. Now, before we wrap things up here, let me just make sure we don't unduly complexify things here. I said that how, do we, how does a young man or how do any of us keep our way pure? Word-centered life, God-centered life, gospel-centered life. That's not really three separate things, okay? It's really one unified focus on God through Christ by means of the Word. They're all together in this. But just to draw emphasis or, or kind of shine the emphasis on each one, that's why we divided them up. But it's really, they're part and parcel one with another. So that is the fight of faith. By grace, through faith, in Christ. 
found in the Word so that we live this God-glorifying life. So let's just close with the final point, a few practical thoughts, fighting the good fight of the faith. So you probably heard the little saying, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So are you fighting? We need to battle our indifference toward the word, battle our distraction, attention issues, boredom, dullness, whatever. We've got to get some fight in us. Like, this is normal Christianity. Listen, Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. If there's poison in the spring, it flows out to all the tributaries. Or Romans 13.14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, the sinful desires, to gratify its desires. So, this whole series has been fighting the good fight of the faith against all these different things that we struggle with. And not only, is, not only do we need direct instruction on lust, but I want you to see how lust is a great example or parable of why we've done this whole series, okay? So, example. How important is it if you are a man to fight your lusts. Hopefully we'd all say, very important. Now imagine that man's married. And what if you asked his wife the same question on his behalf? How important is it that he fight his lusts? She's going to say, very important. So that kind of sensibility is probably, you know, don't have to convince anybody in here. So how do you feel about someone, like let's say that man, throwing up the white flag on this one? acquiescing. It's just who I am. Throwing in the towel, kind of giving up the fight, going with the flow. We obviously know, no, you got to fight. So we need to fight. That's this morning. But recognize that that's a parable. That's like a illustration of why we need to apply it across the board with all of our other besetting sins, like fear and envy, and depression, and anxiety, and grumbling. Depressions, I know, a little bit more complicated, but you get the picture, okay? Go back and listen to that one. So all of our sins that fall into the trust and obey category that feel like cutting against the grain of our soul, do you see why we need to fight the good fight of the faith and not just go to excuses? Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So lust is also a parable in this way. Think about this. What happens when you don't fight impulses of self-indulgence? Your self-control weakens, right? Lack of self-control has inertia, folks. It makes self-control harder. But does that mean that you bear less and less responsibility for your actions the harder and harder it becomes to counteract it, to fight it? Anybody? No. Do, do you see? Do you? I think it's maybe obvious, even though we need to actually make sure we apply it and embrace it. We see this is obvious with lust. Do you see that as obvious with grumbling? 
if we, if we give way to it, it just becomes that much more easy, that much more normal. So we, as God's people, need to get some fight into us. This stuff matters. How about self-pity? Lay it on that one. It is life-giving and life-saving to fight the good fight of the faith. So if you are struggling and you're not fighting, what do you expect? This is God's grace to you to kind of wake you up like, splash of cold water in the face. I need to fight. We need some holy defiance, some holy resistance, some holy refusal to be deceived, some holy anger that Satan is laughing up his sleeve when we get just led around by our noses. So true faith looks like owning it, owning the fight, and being intentionally driven internally to fight sin and follow Jesus and love others. There's, we all need some external prods, and that's why it's such a blessing to do this in community. But when true faith is really working itself out, you're finding ways to poke and nudge and challenge yourself. Are you doing that? So for God's sake, for the good of your soul, for the health and reputation and beauty of Jesus' holy bride, 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight on the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would awaken some holy longing, fan and feed the flames of desire for you, for your word, for purity. I pray that we would not stiff-arm you this morning and submit to the devil. I pray that we would resist the devil and we would draw near to you because we need you, because we want you, because we want to be changed by you, we want to be empowered by you to love you with all of our heart and love our neighbors as ourselves. So please, oh God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith so that we can fight the good fight of the faith. For your great name's sake and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.